0: I gotta tell you, this sermon, the sermon for tonight, has been a particularly tough one. I know I say that from time to time, but this one, I think, might be a new record. I also say from time to time that I do the following, which is I'll write a thing, and then just throw it away and do it again. Um, and I mean it that time, this this time, too. So, there's a lost sermon for tonight that has, like, disappeared into the recesses of the internet. So, like, you know, if it surfaces one day, like, that's what that is. But. it was a struggle but here's what we're up to here's what we're we're doing we are continuing this week in the third week of our summer storytelling series which is on the life of samuel and over the last two weeks in this series we've looked at how god sets the stage for samuel's life in these two essential ways first in samuel's childhood god teaches him how to listen with compassion how to listen with compassion And this is something that we've been saying is at the heart um, of God's character, that God is someone who listens and has compassion. And therefore, what we learned from those stories about Samuel is that we are image bearers of God. We're people who are made in, in his likeness and that means that we are most truly, and most fully being who we were made to be when we can see our character and our hearts and our actions lining up with this example that God has set for us. So we ought to listen because God is a listener. That's, that's why. And then we ought to have compassion. Our listening ought to lead us to compassion because we see over and over that God's listening leads to his compassion. So that was week one of the series. And then last week, in the second week, we looked at how God's compassionate, listening character then teaches us how to set up these, these monuments which enable us to see his faithfulness towards us over time. His faithfulness towards us over time. Samuel does this for the, for the people of Israel in this episode that we, we read last week where he builds this thing called an Ebenezer which is this pile of stones. And then on that pile of stones, he writes, thus far the Lord has helped us. We said last week that that Ebenezer, that monument, enabled the people to look back at their own story and to see God in it. That's what it did. Even when they felt like they were lost in the wilderness, they can look back at these testimonies, at these witnesses to the ways that God Has been with them and blessed them and been present over time. And this, we said, is what becomes the anchor for their ability to have any sort of hope for the future that's in front of them. It's not the promises about the future that gives them their hope, that grounds their hope. It's this long string of God's presence, His consistency and His faithfulness over time, which leads us to then look at this uncertain future and say, like, well, if we've always, if He's always been there before, like, He'll be there again. Then, after church, right, we had, as Claire mentioned, we had this big family meeting that we've been talking about for the last few months. And then and she said, if you missed it, the announcement we made was that we're relaunching on Sunday mornings at the end of August in a new space. And I'm excited, you can tell, oh man, I've, the next words are, I'm excited about this, but like, I think that I've betrayed <laughs> like, I've betrayed this. It's because I was trying to move trailers this afternoon, to like, see if they all still worked, And when I went to hook up one of the trailers to the van, like, and I started to lower the, the, the hitch on, like wasps just poured out. Like, so, two years of sitting over there has, has led to some problems. So, we'll see. We'll see what happens on the 21st. So, in theory, I'm excited about this move. Um, <laughs> and in my talk at the meeting last week, I tried to draw this connection between what we learned in our teaching time, right, about the Ebenezer's and our own church's story. So I emphasized I emphasized those monuments and ways where God has helped us on our journey. I talked in the meeting about the, the nearly 200,000 meals that we've packed over the last 12 years to feed hungry people, the nearly $10 million of medical debt that we worked to forgive just in the last few years. I talked about the churches that we planted. In our own moment of trouble right now, which is just the reality of being a church late in this, in this pandemic. In our own moment of trouble right now, I lost my place. There was a thing, I don't want to mess that up because it seemed really important. As we worked to kind of climb out of the depths of the place that we've been. What I wanted, what I wanted was for us to see and build an Ebenezer, right? Like that's part of what the meeting could be. So we could have this reminder that God has been faithful to us, and that if we look back over the course of our story, we can see this straight line, that same straight line of God's love like, trailing behind us, pointing us forward, and hopefully leading us to a place of like hope and excitement, wasps or not. But tonight, here's, here's why. Oh, that was the easy. I didn't change any of that. That was in the first draft of the sermon, too. Here's where the problem gets in. Because tonight, as we keep moving in Samuel's actual story, we're going to run into this section that is much, much harder to understand and also harder for us to participate in. Because tonight, we're going to look at Samuel's role, not in doing the right thing, but Samuel's role in doing the wrong. Samuel's role in doing the wrong thing. And we're also going to have to confront this really hard question at this stage in our church. And the question is this, why is it important to remember and tell the stories Of our mistakes why is it important to remember and tell the stories of our mistakes there's a lot to work through here so let's kind of jump right in with the passage and then we'll talk about it we're pulling from first samuel chapter 8 verses 1 through 22 which read like this when samuel grew old he appointed his sons as israel's leaders The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba, but his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, you are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's listening again, right? It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who are asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of the chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use he will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves when that day comes you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen but the lord will not answer you in that day but the people refused to listen to samuel no they said we want a king over us then we will be like the other nations with a king to lead us And to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. So there are several hard things, right? There are several hard things to remember here. There are several moments, I would argue, that are pretty embarrassing. The first belongs to Samuel, right? And it's a doozy as we said, I actually wrote doozy. I'm regretting that decision so much. <laughs> Whatever. Oh, jeez. The first embarrassing—that's my—that's my embarrassing thing—is that I wrote doozy in the script. Um, but there's this this embarrassing moment for Samuel. As we said last week, what makes Samuel so important in Israel's story is that he has those two roles, right? He is both Israel's judge and he is also Israel's high priest. And these are distinct roles in the way the nation of Israel has been led. And Samuel's the first, and he's the only person to hold both of these roles at the same time. But they are also roles with differing models for continuation, for for moving on past Samuel. Judges don't pass their title down to their offspring. They're called by God to meet these specific moments of crisis. And there are often these long gaps in Israel's story in between Judges. But priests, however, follow a pattern of inheritance. The role is kept in a family line, and it moves specifically from father to son. Now, because Samuel is a priest, part of the trouble here is that it's kind of unclear to everybody how exactly his sons are supposed to continue on from him. Are they going to officiate the nation's sacrifices in the temple? Or are they going to do the priest job? Or are they going to roam from place to place, judging like the judges do? Now, at the start of the passage, we read that Samuel's sons have been given a kind of like fusion job, a weird mixed job at this kind of like low-level spot in Beersheba. And they're like staying in one place. They're not roaming, but they're judging in that place. And we also read that his sons have proven to be unjust, right? That they've proven to be corrupt in their work. And in addition to the obvious ways that this has to be embarrassing for Samuel, right? To have his own sons... Failing in this way, there's this added wrinkle that in this passage, his sons sound pretty much just like the sons of the last high priest that we talked about two weeks ago, Eli. And what happened to Eli in his line when his sons failed to be good priests? Well, the priesthood was taken from them. So what a tragic thing, right, for Samuel's own priesthood to potentially be like withering here in just one generation. So that's bad memory number one in the story, right? Israel remembers for generations, to, our, to us now, 3,000 years later, we remember the wickedness of Samuel's sons. But it gets worse in the story. Because the people who are afraid about this future under the leadership of Samuel's sons, they react to that fear in this other terrible way. Because instead of asking God to raise up a new judge, which they've done in the past, or even to alter again the course of the priesthood the way he did with Eli, that people take this crisis that they're in with Samuel's sons, and they use that as this opportunity to, to argue for a change to their entire system of governance. And you get the sense that it's something they've been waiting for like a window to ask for for a long time, and like here's their chance, and they seize it. The Israelites seize this chance to demand a king. And they say to Samuel, we want a king over us, then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and to fight our battles. Okay, it's worth asking, right, since there's this sense in that passage that this is built up, what's driving them? What do they want a king for in the first place? And The, the obvious answer, I think, is that they're tired of looking weird in front of their neighbors. The Israelites live in a crowded community in Canaan, and there are two major differences between them and all of the nations that surround them. The first of those differences is they don't have statues or images of their God. In fact, statues and images of their God are forbidden. Everybody else has temples with statues in them. The Israelites don't. That's weird thing number one. And number two, the other major difference is they don't have an obvious ruler. They don't have a king. God, the invisible God, with not even a statue to testify to his presence, is their king. Now, the point we know as readers of this whole story, that the point of Israel has always been to be different, to be a nation set apart, to be a people who bear witness, not to earthly authority, but to this loving authority of a personal and a relational God. The sons of Samuel, the priests, are supposed to be part of that system. But the sons of Samuel and the sons of Eli before him have so damaged god's witness among the nations that the israelites it seems like here the israelites would just rather ditch the whole system throw the whole thing out they'd rather stop being different and just look like everybody else especially if being different isn't looking any better this is already too long of a script so i'm not going to take this aside but like in this moment i'm feeling like oh that's relatable content (laughs) that is that's relatable content I read this funny thing recently that imagined a conversation between Adam in the Garden of Eden and God. And Adam is trying to explain to God that he doesn't like onions, which makes sense because they're kind of gross, although I've grown into liking them as an adult. And he wishes to God that God would not have made the onions. And God's defending what in the story is his favorite of all foods. And Adam says, if you love me, let me not like onions. And I feel like the Israelites are doing just that here. They're saying essentially the same thing to Samuel. Tell God that if he really loves us, let us not have judges. Let us not have this priesthood. Let us just have a king like everybody else. And that's embarrassing memory number two. Israel has abandoned the thing that makes them different. They've abandoned God's plan for them. Now, next in the story, Samuel gets mad at them, and then he goes to God. And you have to imagine that he's expecting when he goes to God that God's going to back him up, that this was a righteous anger that he just like began to unleash on the Israelites. But God doesn't back him up. And instead, he says this. He says, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me, and also I'm used to that. It happens all the time. Now, this is potentially bad memory number three, which is people are remembering in this story that they always make the wrong choices that they always do this sort of thing but nonetheless god says to samuel here before you give them what they want i want you to make sure they know what what they want is going to cost them and so samuel who has learned to listen right that's the whole point of his his story here he does just that and he says to the people that earthly kings are not as generous nor are they as self-sufficient as god is and therefore earthly kings are gonna demand things from the people that God has never demanded from them. Not just tithes, but the earthly kings are gonna conscript their sons into armies. They're gonna build up their own wealth at the expense of the people. They're gonna use that wealth to, to build their own friendships with like other people, right? They're gonna like build a court, they're gonna build this this like culture of attendance and like people that hang out around the palace, and you the people are gonna pay for all of that. God's never asked you for that. In short, What's going to happen here is that people are going to suffer. And when they suffer, Samuel and God both say that they're going to cry out again for help, but this time no help is going to come. So that's bad memory number four in the passage. Whatever suffering the people who wrote this down have experienced is your fault. The suffering you've experienced is on you. So the question here is, are you beginning to like see why this is... Not an easy text to talk about. Why it's difficult. It's difficult because there's not a lot of light here. There's not an example that we're really supposed to follow. In fact, what we can see from our own vantage point some 3,000 years after this moment that's being described is that this isn't just a bad moment. It really is the moment when ancient Israel goes off the rails. Like We know from our vantage point that only three kings are even going to rule in a united Israel before civil war is going to fracture that nation in just three generations. We know that the divided kingdoms of Israel are are both going to be destroyed. First, in the north, where 10 of the original 12 tribes, 10 of the original 12 tribes of Israel are going to be utterly wiped off the face of the earth. And then in the south, where the remnants are going to live, like those remaining two tribes are gonna be conquered by Babylon, one of the great nations of that part of the world at this time, and they're gonna be taken into slavery and exiled. The temple that they build is gonna be destroyed. We know that Israel will not recover from this, that their witness as this set-apart nation in that part of the world is doomed, and that that happens here because their last judge had wicked sons and the people that he led were tired of being different from their neighbors. But here's what really makes the story even more complicated, but also I think where we start to see what we can do with it. And it is this, we're not the only ones who know all of that history. We're not the only ones who know that story. So do the people who wrote it down. So do the people who wrote it down. So a quick reminder here about this book that we call the Bible. The stories of the Old Testament, including the story of Samuel, largely occur at a time when the predominant method of maintaining a cultural tradition is oral storytelling. People tell in in an organized and in a a shockingly uh, consistent and reliable way. They pass... Stories from generation to generation. And in fact, the earliest written records of these stories of Israel, including the one that we're talking about today, those written records don't emerge for more than 500 years after Samuel's time. 500 years. As the Israelites are actually emerging from that exile that we just talked about, that exile in Babylon. Now here's what that means and why it's important, because I know I nerd out about this stuff, but here's why that is important. It means that this terrible moment this collection of bad memories, has lived among these people for 500 years, being preserved after generation after generation after generation, until it ends up winding up on a scroll in the sixth century BCE, and then it gets copied hand by hand, scroll after scroll, generation after generation after generation. Which means that the people who wrote it down, who told it, who wrote it down, who kept copying it, who kept remembering it, are people who lived through the consequences, who lived through the shame of this story and recorded it anyway. And the question for tonight that I started with was, why would you do that? Why hold on to, why work so hard to hold on to an embarrassing story? Here's what I'm getting at. Why do they cling to their dirty laundry? Why don't they tidy it up? Do they need to know that Samuel's sons were bad? Is that really relevant to their memory? Do they need to know that their ancestors didn't just make a mistake, but were petty about it? Just look at that verse, right? And... 19 and 20, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Did you have to write it like that? Did you have to get like the yelled like no in? They sound like children. What's the use of such an embarrassing memory? As we work to answer it, I think it's worth pausing to say like, We don't behave this way. You don't behave this way. I mean, you can take the country that we live in, right? We've only existed for half as long as Israel, and we have written records all over the place that actually could challenge our selective memories of ourselves. And how do we remember our founding stories? I'll tell you this, there are a lot more heroes in our stories than there are in Israel's. And I'll take this a step further, right? We are are living in a moment right now where there is intense fighting going on across this country about even talking about less flattering parts of our story. Much less centering our story on them. And I, some of you are like, ooh, we don't usually go near these things. And you're right, we don't. I'm not trying to wade into any kind of cultural battle about it as much as what I'm doing is I'm just simply trying to say that what Israel has chosen to do is weird to do. It's not how we typically behave. It's not how any nation actually that I can think of has ever behaved aside from them. And it's not just the nations that do that. I started tonight by reminding you, I did this a week ago. I stood up in our meeting and I told the good story about revolution. The one where our vision is really clear and where our actions have always lined up with our values. And why did I do that? I did it because I want you to trust us. I want you to get involved and sign a board on the back. I want you to trust that this church and its community and its vision is a good investment for you, of your time, of your money, of your passions. And here's the thing, as I reflected on all of this this week, that I think gets at the heart of it truth is that we tell flattering stories of our countries we tell flattering stories about our churches we tell flattering stories about ourselves because we want people to trust us we want people to trust us and what's actually at the center of that terrible moment in israel's story that moment where the people ask samuel to help them rebel against their god And then God permits that rebellion. I think at the center of that story, the elders of Israel are saying, we would rather trust ourselves. We'd rather trust ourselves. This is a tough sermon because it forces us to ask a tough question. If it's true that our sins are all forgiven, if it's true that we have new life as children of God, Why does it seem to be important to our Bible to remember and tell stories of our mistakes? And I think the answer is that even if we're forgiven, even if we're forgiven, we're still all tangled up in the consequences of sins. And those consequences aren't always because of our sins. Think back to that story that we just read, right? Who is actually going to suffer as the result of this decision to seek a king? It's not the elders who are asking for it. It's their children. Their sons are the ones who are going to be sent into battle ahead of those chariots to take the arrows so that their king won't have to because their king can't. It's their daughters who are going to be taken into the palace as servants. Way on the line, when the nation's suffering, who or what will they blame? will they not be like their own parents and blame their God for not showing up when they needed him? Is't that what we do? Will they not grow up suffering the consequences of the previous generation's sin and feeling simply betrayed? by a world that from their perspective just seems random and broken and cruel. Here are some of the hard parts about revolution story. We launched in 2010 with the slogan, a church for people who don't like church. We wanted to earn the trust, like I said last week, we wanted to earn the trust of people in our community who are angry at churches. And it was years, it was years before we learned that like approaching the town and approaching our ministry, using that phrase, did huge damage to other churches in our community and alienated us from other congregations who felt like we were mocking them, that we were setting ourselves up as the only ones who knew how to do it right. In our first four years, we grew really quickly. And as we grew, we together made choices that prioritized keeping those crowds in place we moved into bigger and bigger spaces really rapidly, and we did that at the expense of building deep community. This church was so interested and in some ways has continued to be so interested in growth that we burned out our staff and we burned out one pastor already. And personally, personally, I've let my own trauma and I've let my own fears of rejection keep me from reaching out to all the people who have needed somebody to reach out to them, especially in the last two years. And all of this is bigger than us too, right? Like Those are our bad choices. But what about the fact that revolution was born from a church planting movement that seeded many of these bad choices and bad behaviors to grow at all costs, to try and take over the world with every church plant, that seeded those things into our DNA before we even started. And what about the fact that that movement that planted us handed down baggage of its own from its own previous movements and generations? The trauma that's causing all of the damage is hereditary. We repeat things that we don't repair. And that cycle just goes on and on and on. So if that's the reality of how this is working, what can we do? I think what we're supposed to see in this story is that remembering mistakes takes seriously the legacy of those mistakes and the lives that will be impacted by them down the line. And not just that, it helps the people who come later to situate themselves in this bigger story, in this bigger work, which is not a work about fresh starts and erasing the past, it is a work that is about God's patient and compassionate commitment to earning and earning again and earning again our trust. That's the story that we're a part of. We said last week that the point of the of the Ebenezer when we build it is to look back and see the consistency of how God has helped us, of God's faithfulness to us, and we framed that in terms of the good times. Right? We can look back at this line of Ebenezer's and we can see God's presence in our triumphs. But the question I think for tonight is to ask, can't the Ebenezer reveal the opposite story too? Because if what we see when we look back is that God has always been with us, doesn't that mean that He has been near us in our failures as well as those successes? When the Israelites look back, on 500 years of the consequences of this one moment of rebellion, are they not looking back at 500 years in which God was with them too? Did He not, was He not with them through those three kings? Was He not with them through the divide in their kingdom? Was He not with them in exile? Is He not with them now? He has stayed with them. When we look back at the mistakes of our own church, as well as the times when we've done the things right. What does it mean that God has stayed? That in those mistakes, when we've made the wrong choices, that God has nonetheless been present in our story, that a lot of those things are happening at the same time, that we're seeing the blessing of God on this community and the impact of this church in this city, and we're seeing that in the very same moments that we're making mistakes and doing the wrong things. What does that teach us about who God is? I think the point of remembering bad things isn't shame. The point of remembering bad things is to see again that we are a part of a bigger story where God chooses to draw near to us and to help us and to restore us. That he does that at every stage. No matter what baggage has been passed down to us, we are no further from God than we were at the beginning. We are not on a quest to find God, is I think what I'm trying to say. We're not on a quest to find God. That's not what this faith is. We are in a relationship where we always have this chance to choose to trust a God who is present and here now. And in trusting that, to remember our failures past and present and that those failures can help us to see and believe not just that we are forgiven but that we are consistently consistently loved we are carrying baggage from the people that have come before us we're passing it right on back down the point isn't to try and like bend the arc of everything back towards righteousness the point is to accept and understand and believe that god has followed us through all of these things That he's as near to us now as he has ever been. And that the only way that the thing does get fixed, that the repairs do happen, is when we say, we stop telling stories, the point of which is for everybody to trust us. And we start telling stories where the point is, trust him. Trust him. And that's the story I want to tell. That's the story I hope that we can learn to tell. And I can be more faithful in telling it this church. Not a story that says, hey, look at all the good things we've done. Trust me, we're going to be fine but that I can be a leader among you and saying, look, I'm a mess and you're a mess and we're all messes. And here's the thing, like all I can lead you in is I can try and set an example for you of somebody that is trying to trust. A God who is not far over there, whose favor we have to earn, who we have to impress and, and somehow beckon down from the heavens, but a God that is right here with us all the time in the middle of the mistake. And that I think is a more hopeful story and that's why we remember the stories that are embarrassing and hard. Part of the problem was I didn't end this very well either. It's just going to kind of stop. But, yes, ma'am. I'm sorry I've been debating, but I want to interrupt you. Um, I, didn't sign, I didn't sign the poster last week because the good stories didn't help me trust you. Tonight I trust you and I'm resigned. Thank you for being honest. And I'm, I'm broken, and I appreciate you being open to see you're broken. We're part of a broken system, and I want to be part of this broken system. Oops. I was getting emotional. Thank you, guys. That's a better ending than I was going to write. <laughs>